Even though it's Father's Day, we are going to continue in our Supernatural Storyline of the Bible series. We start today with the New Testament with the touch of looking at the Old. Today's sermon will, in some senses, be a continuation of two previous messages that I've done. On May 21st, in the sermon on the life of Abraham, I made this statement. Abraham knew Hagar and she conceived. God did what he promised to Sarah and she conceived. The language could have said that God opened up Sarah's womb. Abraham knew his wife and she conceived, but Abraham is completely taken out of the picture. I pose this question. Did Abraham know Sarah and she conceived? Or did she conceive without Abraham? So it was clearly a work done by God and God alone. I intend to answer that question today. The other message that I'm referring to that this will be somewhat of a continuation from is two weeks ago when we looked at the life of David, I made the claim that God allowed the Nephilim, a hybrid race of angels, and humans to continue so that David, the prefiguration of Christ, would, biblically speaking, put an end to those giants, and then Jesus would put an end to the Goliath of all evil, Satan. There's more to be said about that point as well. Today, we're going to attempt to answer one main question. One main question. But before I say what that question is, there's one principle that I need to make you aware of. And this principle is called the principle of double interpretation. Let me read to you what this means. The principle of double interpretation, also known as the principle of double sense or multiple senses, is a hermeneutical approach that suggests Certain passages of scripture may have both a literal or historical meaning and a deeper spiritual or allegorical meaning. This approach recognizes that some passages in the Bible can convey truths on different levels, allowing for multiple layers of interpretation. This principle has been employed throughout Christian history, particularly in relation to symbolic or prophetic texts. It acknowledges the richness and depth of scripture, allowing a broader understanding of its teaching. Well, let me tell you what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean we take scripture out of context and we just say whatever we think it means and call it an allegorical or deeper spiritual interpretation. We try to find deeper meaning that is revealed in the scriptures based on what God clearly shows or the logic in which God clearly operates. This principle is close to progressive revelation, which we've talked about throughout this series. Progressive revelation is simply the reality, the strategy in which God reveals progressively throughout the course of the Bible, which in reality is human history. He reveals something that you believe to be true, and then it's revealed later in a more deeper, fuller sense. Principle of double interpretation will come into play this morning. With that being said, 
here is the one question we're going to attempt to answer. Why was the virgin birth necessary? Why was the virgin birth necessary? Why didn't God just take a woman who was barren, who never had kids, give her the ability to have children, just like Sarah, Hannah, Elizabeth, and other women in the Bible? Why was the virgin birth necessary? Let's start from the beginning. Back to where it all began, Genesis 3.15. We know this passage well, but let's look at it again and see what is said in the context of answering this question, why was the virgin birth necessary? Here's what Genesis 3.15 says. Quick backdrop for those of you who may not be aware. This verse comes after Adam and Eve were created they disobey God, bite from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God approaches them and has a specific statement, some kind of consequence for both the serpent, Satan, Adam, and Eve. And in this particular verse, he's talking to Satan, the spiritual entity that is responsible for tempting Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, which led to their eventual fall. And this is what God says to him. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, we all know this statement was made after the rebellion of Adam and Eve in the garden. But this statement was also made before Adam and Eve had kids. Genesis 4, 1 and 2 says this. Now, Adam knew his wife knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother, Abram. Okay, so what? Why does this matter? Here's why. When we read Genesis 3.15, we rightly assume that God is essentially saying that the woman presumably a descendant of Eve, will one day give birth to a he that will crush Satan. And we rightly assume that this is true primarily because God created women to be the ones that give birth to children. That's the right assumption. However, in the context of Genesis 3.15, and when this was actually said to Satan, before Satan, Adam, or Eve knew that that's how children were going to come into the world, that action had not taken place yet, in the context of this statement, we have to wonder, we have to wonder, is that what God was actually saying to Satan? That this woman will eventually give birth, because women are the ones who I've created to give birth, to a he that is going to crush your head. That makes sense to us, but in the moment of Genesis 3.15, is that what God is actually saying to Satan? Now, God doesn't have to explain everything fully, 
but women do not give birth without a man. Women do not give birth without a man. And the Bible almost always identifies men by whom their father was much more than their mother. Whether it's due to a patriarchal society or the ancestry is through the man. I mean, even in the uh, Abrahamic covenant, circumcision was for the male circumcised on the eighth day. There was no, no covenantal sign for women except to be under a circumcised man. The Bible is male-centric, and it identifies the sons with their fathers, not their mothers. Case in point, Luke 3. I'm only going to read a couple of these verses because it's like a whole bunch of verses of, you'll see in a second. So beginning in verse 23, we're going to read 23 to 25, and then verses 36 and 37. Here's Luke 3, 23 to 25. When Jesus began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matthet, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Elzai, the son of Nagai, picking up in verse 36, <laughs> the, son of, the son of Canaan, the son of... Arphazad, that sounds like a villain in Shazam or something, Arphazad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Every one of these sons had a mom. But in the Bible, they only connect the son, to who his father was. They may mention, Mary is mentioned in the genealogy of being married to Joseph, who was of the house of David. You might hear Rahab or Ruth mentioned, but the emphasis is not on who their children were, but that God invited those who were not biologically connected to Abraham into the plan of salvation. God knew that men would be identified through their fathers, not their mothers. It's the way the Bible just works. So why didn't God say that Adam would eventually have a son that would crush Satan's head? Why did he say the woman will have an offspring and he will crush your head? Because women can't have an offspring without a man. Why didn't he say Adam will eventually have a son that will one day crush your head? Mary is a descendant of Adam. Joseph, Jesus' earthly dad, is a descendant of Adam. Why identify the offspring that will crush Satan? Why identify that as an offspring of the woman and not of the man? Hmm. Is it because God is telling Satan, eventually this woman? But even still, why is it of the woman? This is where the principle of double interpretation 
comes into play. What was God really saying to Satan in Genesis 3.15? Well, he couldn't have been saying he was the son of Adam because Jesus is the only human being that is not of Adam. He's the only human being that is not of Adam or any man, but was only of Mary, the woman. And God was telling Satan right to his face thousands of years before it happened that the he that's going to crush you is coming from just a woman. Let me make the case again. Some of you don't believe me. And I appreciate that. I want all the smoke. Luke 3.23 that we just read has a parenthetical statement that is a fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 statement of the seed being of the woman. Look at Luke 3.23. Listen to what it says. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son Parenthetical statement, as was supposed of Joseph. This isn't added. This is an addition. This is in the, in the Greek. The parenthetical statement is there. Jesus being the son of Joseph, as was supposed. Parenthetical statement, meaning it's what people assumed that he was. People supposed that Jesus was Joseph's son, as was supposed. In this parenthetical statement, God is making the point through the writer of Luke, who the physician was very pointed at everything he wrote. Most people who argue about the, the, the authenticity of the Gospels don't bother Luke. Because Luke wrote Luke and Acts, and there's too much. He was a doctor. He was meticulous. He said too much. Most people don't argue with Luke. They go after, like, John. They go after Mark sometimes. And people don't play around with Luke. And it's Luke that puts as was supposed, meaning people thought Jesus was the son of Joseph, but we know that he's the son of Mary. But people thought he was the son of Joseph, as was supposed. The emphasis is being clear. It's not of the man. It was of suppose of Joseph. To further prove the point, Joseph, Jesus' earthly dad, by way of marriage to Mary, is almost completely out of the picture in the Gospels. The primary way we understand who Jesus is, what Jesus said, and what Jesus did is in the four Gospels, and Joseph is woefully absent. In fact, after Luke chapter 2, where they were looking for Jesus and found him in the temple, we don't hear about Joseph again, except when people are saying, isn't that Joseph's son? <laughs> Apart from that, we have no idea what happened to the dude. We assume that at some point he died from what happened at the crucifixion, what was said there. 
But apart from that, we don't know anything about where he is. Any familial relational connection is between the woman and her son. We see Mary on multiple occasions. Jesus, your mother and sister and brother, they're looking for you outside. They think you're going crazy. You see Mary telling Jesus, hey, they don't got no more wine. Turn the water into wine. Oh, woman, it's not my time. Hey, whatever he says, do. You see that? We see this in John 19, verses 25 through 27. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Had Joseph been alive, this wouldn't have happened. Because you don't take someone else's mom into your home when you're married. That husband provides for her. So we assume that by the crucifixion, Joseph was gone. We don't hear about him and a man, his dad. But we hear about him and his mom, the woman who gave birth without a man. In Revelation 12, we're going to look at four verses, verses 1 and 2, and in verses 5 and 6. We know this passage well. We started this Supernatural Storyline series in September with this passage. Here's what it says, verses 1 and 2. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and, the head, uh, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pangs, and the agony of giving birth. Verse 5. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Almost every theologian believes this scene is describing Mary's pregnancy. And if I would have kept reading, it would have said the great dragon was waiting for the child to be delivered so it could devour it. But God pulled the woman away. Remember when God told Joseph, Herod's trying to kill the child? Go to Egypt until I tell you. That scene is symbolically described in Revelation 12. Almost every theologian believes this. In Genesis 3.15, what was God really saying to Satan? God was telling Satan, without Satan knowing it, that the seed that will crush him will be solely of a woman. He was laying the foundation for the virgin birth. It will be her offspring. God isn't just calling Jesus the woman's seed because women are the ones whom he created to have children. God is telling Satan that the he 
The woman that will give birth to will happen without a man. It will be her offspring, even though the rest of the Bible identifies the offspring connected to their fathers. This offspring will be connected to its mother because it will not have an earthly father. And Satan had no idea as God was just letting him know. It's like when you, it's like when you cook some crabs. And they put them, you put them in and they just looking at you. They don't know what's, they don't know what's getting ready to happen. That water is boiling and they in there like looking at you like, man, as soon as you take these rubber bands off, it's a wrap. I'm grabbing on with everything. They don't know what's coming until they get in that hot pot and realize it's a little warmer here than with the water I'm used to being in. When they fade to black. And then they fade your stomach after you put the proper obey and all that on it. If y'all don't know that, if y'all know that, y'all can't be in this church. God was telling Satan as far back as Genesis 3.15 about the virgin birth, that the one that will crush him will be of the woman, not of a man. The gospels are absent. And God's proven this. There's not even, the gospels are absent about Joseph. Revelation 12 is about Mary. And the serpent, the serpent trying to destroy it. Revelation 12 actually connects back to Genesis 3.15 in the description of the hatred. Look at Genesis 3.15 again. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God, why are you putting enmity, hatred between the woman and Satan? Why wouldn't you put it between Adam and Satan? I mean, he's the head. He was the first created. Why is there hatred? It's not just hatred between your offspring and her offspring. It's hatred between you, Satan, and the woman, her offspring, your offspring. He, her offspring is singular. He will crush your head. This statement is fulfilled in the symbolic scene of Revelation 12. Why not enmity with Adam? Because Satan is going to hate the person that the seed is from, and the seed is not from Adam. The woman that Satan hates is Mary, as clearly depicted in Revelation 12, but in Genesis 3.15, he doesn't know that yet. So until then, the hatred for the woman will be eased, and presumably all women, but his ultimate hatred is for the one who will give birth to the seed that will crush him. It's not Adam's son. Jesus is not from Adam, but he's a better version of him. 1 Corinthians 15, 45 tells us this. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Adam was uniquely created from the ground. The second Adam is uniquely created also. The reality of the virgin birth began in Genesis 3, and it progressively, it progressively goes on throughout the scriptures. We get to Isaiah 7, and it's the first time we actually get confirmation that it's a virgin birth. 
And then progressively, that becomes Luke chapter 2. So in the natural storyline, we are right to assume that Genesis 3.15 is talking about the woman will eventually give birth to a seed because women are the ones who God created to give birth to children. But in the supernatural storyline, God is telling Satan right to his face from the beginning that it will be a woman and only a woman that gives birth to the one who will destroy you. And for the rest of the human history up until Jesus comes, Satan and all cosmic powers of evil are trying to figure out who is the he. And how will this happen? God gave him the playbook to show him you can't do anything about it. You are too small. Second reason why the virgin birth. The first reason is because God told Satan, hidden in plain sight. That's the first reason. Hidden in plain sight, God told Satan, this woman, double interpretation, progressive revelation. Whoa. Whoa. No woman. No man. Second reason of why the virgin birth. There are two rebellion reversals happening. So we know redemption, we've defined in this series as rebellion reversal. Rebellion is Genesis 1 through 11. The Garden of Eden, the sin of the angels having sex with women in Genesis 6 that caused a flood, the Tower of Babel. There are two reversals that deal with the virgin birth. Now, Genesis 3.15 is the first time, this is the beginning of spiritual warfare. Remember, spiritual warfare does not start in Ephesians 6. It ends there. It begins in Genesis 3.15. All right, Satan, since you did this, you're going to give birth to a seed coming for you. Notice that there's no talk of redeeming humanity. The he that's coming is to crush you. Sidebar, even in the best theology that I'm aware of, I think in some senses there are aspects of what I would call reformed theology that are solid. But even in the best theology that I'm aware of, it's the gospel is very man-centric. See, when you're reformed, you think, oh, you're man-centric if you think you get to choose versus elected, versus chosen. No. Man-centric is thinking Jesus came to save me of my sins first. No. Even in Genesis 3.15, the he that's coming is coming to crush you. That's the first order of business. Humanity is the context in which he does this, but the reason, the first reason he's coming is Satan, it's a wrap for you. And because you did this to humans, it's going to be a human who does this back to you. This is the beginning of spiritual warfare. It's the curse of Satan that sets in motion the reality. And then through progressive revelation, we get to Abraham. God makes a covenant with Abraham that's connected to the curse of Genesis 3.15. He makes a covenant with Abraham. 
and tells Abraham that he'll have offspring that are going to change everything. And then from Abraham, we get Isaac and then Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons, and they become the community of people that form into the nation of Israel. So from that curse, you get this covenant that produces this community. And then within that community, we get to David. And David is the clan, the family in which this seed will come from that stems from the curse that led to a covenant that produced a community, that produced a clan that will eventually produce the man. Four C's and an M. That was for you, LaShawn. Four C's and an M. Curse, covenant, community, clan, man. Four C's and an M. Four C, M. David is a direct family line that comes out of Abraham where the seed of Eve that will bruise Satan's head comes from. And a few hundred years after David, some time passes after, after David, we get this scene in Isaiah 7. The first time we are told by God he reveals that it's going to be a virgin. Isaiah 7, 10 through 14. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. I love when the Lord tells people, do something, and they're like, nah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> like, like Ahaz, I don't want to put the Lord to the test. Like, hey, psst, Ahaz, you're not godlier than God. Like, no, nah, I don't, don't, don't want to sin against you, Lord. Oh, so I'm trying to get you to sin against me, Sam? Like, that's what we're doing right now? Like, verse 13, then he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to be weary, to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This is the first time we get this reality. But here's the question. Why a virgin, though? Why a virgin? We know he told Satan that. But why not a barren woman who never had a child like Sarah or Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist's, Jesus' aunt, Elizabeth? Pregnancy from barrenness is still a miracle that God allows a woman who was biologically incapable on her own to have children. That's still a miracle. Every time it happened in the Bible, they were like, oh, my God, God people are going to laugh. At God's giving me pleasure. He's giving me joy. Elizabeth hid because she was like, ain't nobody going to believe this. <laughs> Why did he decide to make it a virgin? Specifically. Well, you know this as much as I do. When God announces something, it's going to be unique. And by unique, I mean only something he can do. You see it in the creation of humanity. Let us make man in our own image in Genesis 1, 26. After our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and the livestock, right? So God is like, look, I'm getting ready to do something I haven't done yet. I've created all these supernatural beings. I've created the entire understandable universe. I've, cre I I've established eternity. Well, there's no time. I've created all these things, but I'm announcing I'm getting ready to do something I've never done before. This is going to be unique. 
Check this out. God did the same thing with the plagues. Exodus 7, verses 1 through 5. Listen to what he said. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his hand. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgments. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Jesus is announcing, Moses, what I'm getting ready to show you hasn't been done yet. I'm getting ready to bring plagues on Egypt that they don't want this smoke. And then my people are going to come out. When God does, he announces something, it's going to be unique. And unique meaning only he can do it. And it also means it will be something that he hasn't done before. But God already let women who were barren have children. So barrenness, though miraculous, is not unique. It was at first. But by the time Jesus is born, it's not anymore. But a virgin birth? That's unique. And this uniqueness is the difference in Mary's response to Gabriel versus Zechariah's. This is the clear difference. Let me explain. Two scenes in Luke chapter 1. Here's the one with Zechariah. Verse 16 through 20. Zechariah, Luke 1. Gabriel's talking to Zechariah, the priest. And he says this, And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in, in just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the days, until that day, until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Here's what happens with Mary, verse 31, 31 through 35. Luke 1, and behold, same angel, Gabriel, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be? Almost identical to the question that Zechariah asked. How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. These questions are almost identical. But Zechariah was accused of unbelief, but Mary was not. Why? It's almost the same question. Why was his unbelief and hers was not? Zechariah, a priest, knows the word of God, knows the character of God and the person of God. You can't be the priest who enters the temple alone and not know who God is and what God has done. 
Zechariah is the son of Abraham. He knows God. And on multiple occasions, he knows that God has given older women who never had kids the ability to have children. In fact, the whole priesthood that he has is established by the fact that God gave an older woman who was well beyond her years of having children named Sarah, a baby named Isaac, that had Jacob that produced his identity. So the very foundation of what he's doing in that moment by talking to the angel Gabriel is predicated on the fact that God can give a woman who hasn't had a child and who's too old to have one a child just like he's telling him his wife is going to have. So his question was questioning something that God has already proven that he can do. Mary's question was not something that has never been done before. There's no history in Israel of, in the world of a virgin birth. But there's plenty of stories of women beyond their ability to have children having them. And Zechariah, the priest, knows that. So his question was unbelief. Fam, God's already done this. What do you mean, how is this going to happen? How did it happen for Sarah and the other women in the Old Testament? For Mary, this is a question of this has never happened. This is unique. There's no record of a virgin birth. But still, why the emphasis of virgin? Why does it have to be a virgin? We know it's unique, but why? Well, the word virgin is a sexual connotation. It's describing a woman's sexual history, that she's never had sexual relations with a man. She's never had sexual intercourse with a man. It's a sexual connotation. God is drawing attention to her sexual connotation and saying, this is important to me. Why is this important to God? Why is her virginity, a sexual connotation, important to God? Well, God knows that the seed that she has is going to be a hybrid of human and supernatural. Human and divine. But a hybrid of human and divine is not unique. It's not unique. In Genesis 6, which we've talked about thoroughly already, divine beings created a hybrid with women through sexual intercourse. Stay with me. Some of y'all are. The divine hybrid is not a unique reality. And the last time that divine hybrid of human and divine happened, it happened as a result of rebellion against God through sexual intercourse with supernatural beings and human beings. And since angels created a hybrid that is divine and human, 
God's hybrid has to happen in a way that opposes Satan's way and not imitates it. So the seed of Eve <laughs> will be born of a woman, but it will not happen by sexual intercourse the way the offspring of Satan happened. Mm-mm. I'm going to do something that you cosmic powers of darkness cannot do. You had to take on human form and have sex with women. I'm not going to touch the woman at all. The supernatural being that will be responsible for this divine hybrid is God himself. So the virgin aspect of Mary is extremely important because it says y'all can't do this. No one can do this. And I'm going to do this in a way they can, what's interesting is the angels had to submit to the way God defined things for humanity. They had to take on human form and say, okay, I'm going to have sex with women. That's the way God, that was the parameters in which God says people will come into the world. It's the only way that they could have sons. And we talked about this in then and through the book of Enoch and their language and all of it. That's the only way to them they can have a son is we got to disobey God, become human beings, and have sex with women. So God shows up and says, hey, just wanted to let y'all know this is I create the parameters. I can go against them. You have to submit to the way I define things. I'll just create a new way. <laughs> so y'all had sex and had this evil divine hybrid. Oh, it's going to be another one, but it ain't going to be the way you did it. This one's going to be unique. Something only I can do and something that has never been done before. The virgin birth reverses the action the first, the last time there was a hybrid between humanity and supernatural beings. It reverses it. First, by creating a unique divine hybrid that wasn't sinful. Mary said, look, how can I, how will this be? I'm a virgin. Luke 1.34, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So first, God creates a divine hybrid in on, the only way that he can. No one else can do this. Satan, no cosmic powers of God. Nobody can do this. No one. Second, this divine hybrid reverses much of what the Nephilim the divine hybrid of Satan did. That divine hybrid, the Nephilim, tried to destroy the world. Jesus, the divine hybrid, came to save the world. That divine hybrid enslaved humanity. Jesus, divine hybrid, frees humanity from slavery. That divine hybrid caused water to destroy the world. Jesus, the divine hybrid, 
is the living water that recreates it. That divine hybrid caused demons to come into the world. Jesus, a divine hybrid, brought the Holy Spirit into the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how does this connect back to David? Well, David was the prefiguration of Jesus, and he reversed the evil hybrid by taking their lives. Jesus' virgin birth reverses the evil hybrid by coming to life. He overshadows the previous hybrid, the Nephilim, and undoes their sinful impact on humanity. So why the virgin birth? Because the divine hybrid was not unique. But the kind of way that the divine hybrid comes most certainly is. Third and final reason of why the virgin birth. The last reversal. Let's go back one more time to Luke 34. Luke 1, 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. What makes Jesus uniquely different than every other person that lived is that he had no earthly father. Had no earthly father. But it's a little deeper. Listen to this from relearn.org. It says, why is the virgin birth of Jesus absolutely necessary? Because if Jesus were born of Joseph, he would have, the, he would have had original sin. He would have been born physically corrupted, spiritually dead, sinful, and cursed. If that were the case, Jesus could not pay for the sins of others because he would have to pay for his own sin with his own life. Therefore, the cross would not be a moment of redemption, but simply the passing away of another sinner. As a result, no justification could be given by faith. No redemption could be brought by, bought by his blood. No wrath could be just satisfied by his death, and no resurrection could occur to validate his righteousness. 100% agree with. But here's the other thing. We never really get a clear understanding of what the sin nature is. The scripture talks about the flesh, but how can it be the flesh when Jesus had the same flesh that we had? Same flesh. Listen to Hebrews 2, 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So it's saying Jesus was born in, in flesh. He, didn't, he wasn't born with a different flesh than us. Yes, he was fully God and fully man. We get that. But he functioned as a human being. So he got tired. He needed to eat. He slept. He had to be potty trained. All the stuff that you got to be. I mean, maybe not. Maybe he was just doing it on his own. And Mary was like, wow, this <laughs> could have been. He could have just had it figured out. He said, no, I don't need no help. I was like, what? What you talking? You two? Yeah. He just got up, walked, made some bread. 
at one and a half. Like, what? What's up? Brothers was like, what is Could have been. But no, I think Jesus took on the same flesh. So, so what is it that makes us sinful? Where does that come from if Jesus had similar flesh? Where does the sin nature come from? I don't know, but we'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. I'm just playing. Y'all are judgmental. This is a judgmental church. It's Father's Day, too. Judging me in front of my kids back there. Many of us know, theologically speaking, that the virgin birth was necessary so that Jesus wouldn't be stained with sin. And that's true. But what I think is important to understand is, because we, when we think of it, we think of it as sort of a metaphysical, mystical reality. But this morning, I want to explain how amazing God is, that this is actually simply a biological reality. This is a biological reality, not a metaphysical biological reality. Let me explain. Scientifically speaking, the blood flowing through the arteries and veins of an unborn baby does not come from the mother. It is produced within the fetus itself after the introduction of male sperm. The female egg alone does not have within it the necessary elements for blood production. This only happens, blood coming into the baby, this only happens when the male sperm unites with the female ovum, the male element adds life to the egg, so there is no need for a single drop of blood to be transferred from the mother to the developing embryo in the womb. Listen to this from the nurse's handbook of obstetrics. When the circulation of the blood begins in the embryo, it remains separate and distinct from that of the mother. All food and waste material, which are interchangeable between the embryo and the mother, must pass through the blood vessel walls from one circulation to the other. So all the nutrients and stuff go between in the umbilical cord, but not a drop of the mother's blood ever goes into the fetus. The baby develops his own blood coming from the sperm of the male, which, which, which develops the bone marrow and the liver where blood starts to circulate. More from the same book. The fetus receives its nourishment and oxygen from the mother's blood into its own through the medium of the placenta. The fetal heart pumps blood through the arteries of the umbilical cord into the placenta vessels, which, looping in and out of the uterine tissue, I know we're getting scientific right now. Yeah. A couple of y'all nurses is like, that's my pastor. <laughs> in and out of the uterine tissue, and lying in close contact with the uterine vessels permit a diffusion through their walls of waste products from child to mother and nourishment from oxygen from mother to child. As has been said, this interchange is affected by the process of osmosis, and there is no direct mingling of the two blood currents. In other words, no maternal mother blood actually flows to the fetus nor is there any direct fetal blood flow to the mother. The mother provides the necessary nutrients for the growth of the unborn infant in the womb as it's growing, but all the blood forming is developed on its own 
but it's solely coming from the male sperm. From the moment of conception until birth, the baby does not receive any blood directly from the mother. Now, why is this important? Because according to scripture, life is in the blood. Luke 17, I mean, uh, Leviticus 17, 10 through 12. Listen to this. If any of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. The life is in the blood. And I have given it to you, and I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. The life is in the blood. So all of you Twilight Watchers and Vampire Watchers, y'all got to cut that out. Because they blood suckers and God said life is in the blood. He will cast that out. So cut out them Twilight pick piddle parties that y'all be having. I know y'all be having tickle parties watching that type of stuff. The life is in the blood. So what does all of this mean? God made the human body for spiritual warfare. In particular, he, he made the human body to prepare for the birth of his son because it didn't need to happen with a man. And the transmission of sin then comes from Adam through the male. So if there's no male that is responsible for the blood developing in the womb and it's not coming from the sinful blood of the mother, then the blood is incorruptible. Life is in the blood. Eternal life is in the blood. This explains why Jesus Christ could be sinless even from a scientific biological issue. God didn't make this super metaphysical. He said, when I prepare this woman, I'm aware of what you're going to do, Satan, so I'm going to make sure that she's capable to have a child born in her and she can't corrupt it and it won't come from the man. I will put the baby in there and so the blood that develops will be incorruptible and it will be that blood that saves all of the people that you corrupted. This is why the Bible talks about the blood. This is why the emphasis in the New Testament is about the blood. It's the blood. Literally, the blood. What they, Mike, what are they singing to your, your mother church? I know it was the blood. I know it was the blood. I know it was the blood that saved me. What they say, Matt? One day when I was lost, Jesus died on the cross. I know it was the blood that saved me. It is the blood. It's incorruptible because it didn't come from a man. So when G God said to Satan, it will be of the woman, he meant it. 
There is no transmission of sin that comes through the man and his sperm because there is none that created Jesus. The blood is incorruptible. So when we believe in Jesus, guess what? We get a supernatural blood transfusion. Now, in our theological framework, that just means we're justified before God. It's the blood, the incorrupt. This is why no matter how nice people are, you can't get to heaven. Because the problem is not your obedience. The problem is the blood that runs in your life. That blood is corrupted. So the only way you can even stand before God is to have blood that's not corrupted. You need to be cleansed by a blood that is, uh, that is not dirty. Even if you did all these, there's some nice people that are going to hell because your obedience, the problem is your blood is corrupted. God made this a biological reality. In closing, the father is biologically responsible for the blood of his child and the fetus that gives it life. The father is supernaturally responsible for the blood of his child and the fetus that gave us eternal life. For this reason, I do not believe that Sarah conceived without Abraham. Because if there was no sperm from the man, then Isaac would be have incorruptible blood, and he does not. So even though the language is there, and I did that to test y'all, to be honest, to make sure y'all stay on your toes. Don't be goose chasing and thinking everything is something. I did that for y'all. The only person, the only person who had that kind of birth where no man was involved is Jesus. And that's why it's his blood that saves us. The father is responsible for the blood in the natural realm and in the supernatural realm. So happy Father's Day. So why was the virgin birth necessary? One, because he told Satan that it was. It was hidden in plain sight. Two, to undo the evil hybrid of the Nephilim. And three, to undo the curse of Adam by not having